All right, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Major Mondays webinar on pre-answer motion practice in New Jersey. Uh, as always, this is a live question and answer session, so if you have any questions, uh, put them up in the chat box and we'll get to them at the end. So let's start off with what is the trigger for a potential pre-answer motion? In other words, when is a response required? Uh, so it's service of the summons and complaint. In New Jersey, the answer has to be filed within 35 days. Um, in most cases, it's going to be an answer that's getting filed, responding to the allegations in the complaint individually, uh, raising all applicable defenses, counterclaims, cross-claims. Uh, it's pretty much how most of these actions go. Um, but a pre-answer motion to dismiss will toll the deadline to actually file uh, that answer. So if your motion ends up denied, in other words, the case stays alive, uh, you still have 10 extra days to file that answer once the motion gets denied. So we're gonna be living uh, on today's webinar in court rule four colon six dash two. This is, uh, well, four colon six in general. This is where uh, most of the pre-answer motion practice law and uh, statute is gonna come from. Um, the rule requires that every defense uh, must be asserted in the answer, but it gives you six specific defenses that can be made by motion. Uh, these are defenses based on jurisdiction, both personal and subject matter, uh, process, uh, including service of process and whether the process itself was sufficient, uh, the sufficiency of the pleading, i.e. failure to state a claim, uh, and joinder of a necessary party. And we're gonna get into each one of these individually. So our grounds for dismissal. Here they are uh, listed outright, lack of subject matter jurisdiction, lack of personal jurisdiction, insufficiency of process itself, the paper served on the defendant, uh, insufficiency of service of process, um, failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted, and failure to join a necessary party. Um, note that while these are the grounds in the rule for a pre-answer motion to dismiss, uh, they are not the only affirmative defenses out there. Uh, so what are some other defenses that might get raised? The entire controversy doctrine, we're gonna dive into this towards the end of the webinar because uh, there's an interesting subrogation component on it and a recent case that uh, changes how it's addressed. Uh, comparative negligence, uh, parentheses I put here, modified. New Jersey is what's referred to as a modified comparative negligence state. So if the plaintiff themselves is more than 50% at fault for the happening of the subject accident, it's actually a bar to the claim. In New York, you can still recover uh, even if you were 90% at fault, your recovery is just going to be reduced to 10%. Um, so that's an interesting quirk of the uh, New Jersey litigation. Uh, primary assumption of risk, frequent affirmative defense, uh, doctrine of avoidable consequences. Uh, arbitration clauses are another one that you have to raise or you're going to lose. Uh, and race judicata. So talking about a dismissal versus an affirmative defense. Uh, so obviously all the grounds for dismissal can be raised in the answer as affirmative defenses, but, 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 the biggest but in this whole thing, uh, be wary of the issue of waiver. So uh, rule four colon six continues, subsection three, um, defenses B, C, and D must be raised by motion within 90 days of service of the answer, provided they were raised in the answer, uh, or they are waived. And rule four colon six dash six, has a consolidation of all your defenses, no multiple motions. So you can't file a pre-answer motion to dismiss based on one of the six grounds from the rule and then file another one 10 days later. You gotta do it all at once or not at all. So how does this boil down to uh, actual litigation when you're filing a response? So you have the specific defenses laid out in four colon six dash two. 
You have 6-3, which requires uh, a motion within 90 days of service of the answer for your personal jurisdiction and your process defenses, those middle three. Uh, you have rules 4-6-6 and 6-7. Uh, they combine to provide that the personal jurisdiction and process defenses are also waived uh, if they're not raised in the first motion, which, as we're discussing, can be pre-answer. Uh, defenses as to subject matter jurisdiction, failure to state a claim, and failure to join a necessary party uh, can be made before or at trial, and uh, subject matter jurisdiction is obviously never waived. Uh, you're attacking the court's very power to entertain the case, so obviously that can be brought up at any time. So why would a motion for summary judgment potentially be the better way to go? So the difference between the two is the dismissal happens uh, before any discovery is conducted. Uh, we're filing it before we even file an answer. We're saying this case doesn't even belong in this court or this case has uh, no legs to stand on. So we try to get rid of it immediately. And that sounds like a pretty attractive result. But why would a motion for summary judgment after we have the chance to do some discovery potentially be a better course of action? Well, it's generally going to have a race judicata effect as a decision on the merits. Uh, so you say um, you raise a defense based on a defect in service. If, uh, the, if you're still within the statute of limitations, you can just perfect the service and serve again and file again. Uh, so when you, have, when you prevail on a defense in summary judgment, you're actually going to get that preclusive effect from the race judicata. Uh, the plaintiff's allegations on a motion for summary judgment need no longer be taken as true. Uh, and I'm citing here uh, the standard case that every New Jersey attorney knows, uh, Brill versus Guardian Life Insurance Co. of uh, America. That standard applies. Um, you might want to consider posturing with court and individual judges. Uh, some judges really do not care for the pre-answer motion. Uh, and they think it's gamesmanship. They think it's just a litigation tactic. Uh, and there are admittedly some uh, defend, defense attorneys that will get a little trigger happy with it. So you want to consider your relationship with the court. Uh, and the opportunity to conduct discovery without tipping your hand. So you might have a great defense in your back pocket, but it might be premature to raise it now because uh, the plaintiff might have an easy answer for it. And after discovery, you might have really been able to put the nail in the coffin. So we're gonna dive into each of the individual grounds for dismissal. Uh, let's start with lack of subject matter jurisdiction. So as mentioned previously, you're challenging the court's very power to hear and decide the case. Uh, this objection is effective whenever made and may be raised at any time. And subject matter jurisdiction can't be conferred by consent or waived, um, but the courts do have liberal, liberal provisions for the transfer of actions among the various courts. So. Uh, say it's not proper in the court it's in, it can be proper in another court. It doesn't mean the case is necessarily dead outright. <clears throat> so lack of personal jurisdiction. Uh, this is a question of whether the court has jurisdiction over the defendant themselves. So this must be raised either by motion before answering the complaint or by answer and then motion. In other words, you're raising it as an affirmative defense in your answer uh, within 90 days. Uh, this is a legal right protecting the individual, and it can be waived intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, case cited to here, Burns versus Landrau and Rosa versus Araujo. Um, there are cases that involved a uh, plaintiff, or I'm sorry, a defendant appearing in an action uh, even through counsel. And in some cases, the actions that that defendant ends up taking uh, are an implied consent to personal jurisdiction. 
So insufficiency of process. This is the second of our waivable defenses. Uh, we just mentioned that personal jurisdiction is one of them, and there are three total. Um, insufficiency of service is subsection D. Uh, this is the last of the waivable defenses of the three. Um, so what goes on with service of process? Well, rule 4, colon 4-3, summons shall be served with a copy of the complaint. Okay, great. Summons and complaint, same thing we're going to serve in New York. Seems pretty straightforward. But the New Jersey court rules sort of jump all over the place. So we have uh, rule 4, colon 5-1B and 4, colon 5A-2 uh, combined to require the inclusion of what's called a case information statement or a CIS. Uh, and a track assignment notice. And the track assignment notice is just uh, something that the court sends out within 10 days uh, maximum after the case is filed that says what track it's on for discovery purposes. Normally it's going to be 300 days, um, but you need to include all four of those or else that process is defective and you have to look outside rule four colon four dash three to figure that out. Uh, rule four colon four also specifies the permissible methods of service. Uh, so your ways of obtaining in personam jurisdiction. Uh, spoiler alert, the most common one is personal service. That's always going to be your best bet. Go through a process server, get the affidavit of service. It becomes pretty bulletproof. So the most complicated one, the most hotly litigated, uh, failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. And interestingly, this one is not one of the waivable defenses. So New Jersey is what's called a fact pleading jurisdiction, uh, as opposed to just notice pleading. Uh, so you have to include enough facts in your allegations in the complaint to actually support your claim outright. You can't just rattle off causes of action for negligence or negligent entrustment and call it a day and leave it up to the defendant to challenge them. You actually have to include specific facts and allege them in the complaint. Um, a motion based on failure to state a claim has to be based entirely on the complaint. If you start bringing in outside evidence to prove that the plaintiff doesn't have a claim, uh, it gets converted into a motion for summary judgment per rule 4 colon 6-2. Uh, and for the reasons we're going to get into, that basically means it's going to be dead in the water. So uh, further on failure to state a claim. So if it gets converted to a motion for summary judgment, it becomes subject to rule 4 colon 46. So I uh, cited to the entire rule here, uh, if the pleadings, depositions, answers to interrogatories and admissions on file together with the affidavits, if any, show that there is no genuine issue as to any material fact challenged and that the moving party is entitled to judgment or order as a matter of law. In other words, it's gonna get your uh, motion for failure to state a claim because you included outside evidence gets converted into a summary judgment motion which normally is going to be based on discovery, but guess what? You filed this pre-answer and you don't have any discovery. So this is where I was getting at where it's kind of dead in the water if you start trying to bring in anything other than the pleading itself. Um, what this means, good luck having a pre-answer motion for summary judgment granted with zero discovery, uh, even though it is technically permissible to file one. So continuing with the most complicated of uh, these defenses, so um, it's a possibility as opposed to a plausibility standard. Uh, so what the court is gonna be looking at is whether a cause of action is even suggested by the facts. So this is going to be an incredibly high bar to actually have it be granted. Uh, there are standards uh, set forth in Printing Mart Morristown versus Sharp Electronics Corp and Nostrame v Santiago. Uh, 
basically it obligates the court to find the plaintiff's claim for them if uh, the defendant raises this particular defense in a motion. Uh, the court has to search the complaint in depth, that's actually how it's worded, uh, by the New Jersey Supreme Court to determine if a cause of action can be gleaned with an opportunity to amend given to the plaintiff so they can amend their complaint. Uh, and it doesn't matter how poorly worded or far-fetched it may seem, the standard is the court's going to pour over the complaint and see if a cause of action can be taken out of it at all. Uh, the Supreme Court in Printing Mart instructs to grant a dismissal under this particular ground only in, quote-unquote, the rarest of instances. So, <clears throat> excuse me, the courts are literally under a directive to be very stingy with how often this one's going to be granted. So does it ever work? Well, the answer is yes. This is the perfect place for your statute of limitations defense. Uh, you're going to say that the claim was filed too late. This is your chance to do it. This is the one you would raise it under. Uh, and of course, you can't discount the possibility of a truly inept plaintiff's attorney uh, that files it as a notice complaint instead of a fact complaint. Uh, and just it has just so blatantly insufficient on its face. So the last of our individual grounds here, failure to join a necessary party. Uh, so we're going to look to rule 4, column 28-1. Uh, a person subject to process shall be joined if complete relief cannot be accorded among the parties in person's absence, or the person claims an interest and disposition in their absence either impairs their ability to protect that interest or leaves other parties at substantial risk of multiple obligations. Uh, in other words, this is going to be multiple claims against the same defendants outside of the same cause of action. So if a person cannot be served with process, the court has to determine whether the action should be dismissed. So failure to join a necessary party, not necessarily fatal. Uh, it doesn't negate the, the court's power to adjudicate between the parties who have already been joined to the case. Uh, and a party is not considered truly indispensable unless they have an interest inevitably involved in the litigation subject matter and judgment cannot be made without either a judging or necessarily affecting their interests. So that's uh, the standard per Chubb Custom Insurance Co versus Prudential Insurance Co. So as always with each and every one of the Major Mondays webinar, time for a little workers compensation sidebar since that's what uh, most of you are here for. <laughs> so uh, workers compensation court in New Jersey has exclusive jurisdiction to determine the is issue of employment status. So this is the case uh, Lefkin versus Venturini. Uh, though the Superior Court and the Division of Workers' Compensation have concurrent jurisdiction to decide an exclusivity defense, primary jurisdiction, as we just mentioned, is in the division because it can decide all aspects of the controversy in a manner binding on all interested parties. So this standard was set forth in Christensen versus Morgan. Uh, so how does this apply to pre-answer motion practice? Well, the defense of the bar of workers' comp exclusivity in other words, uh, I'm currently subject to a workers' compensation claim as your employer. I'm obligated by statute to pay you those benefits. You cannot turn around and sue me civilly now. Uh, one of the exceptions is the so-called laid low claim for an intentional wrong. Uh, that's a webinar for another day. Uh, but that defense can be waived by failing to raise it by motion or as an affirmative defense prior to trial. Uh, and there's literally a case that sets this forth, Bender versus Rosen. So that uh, lovely workers' comp exclusivity defense, which is really very powerful, uh, can actually be waived if not raised and addressed timely. So I mentioned earlier we would be getting into something called the entire controversy doctrine to wrap up the webinar here. 
So what exactly is this? And there's a subrogation component too, so um, that's why we're bringing this one up a little more in depth. Uh, so rule 4 colon 30a, non-joinder of claims required to be joined results in preclusion of those claims. Um, it requires joinder in one action of all legal and equitable claims related to a single underlying transaction. That's from the case Manhattan Woods Golf Club versus Arai. Uh, so basically what it's saying is that if there are claims arising from the same transaction or occurrence, uh, they all have to be handled under the one claim so that there's just not multiple claims floating out in the court system or the defendants don't get hauled back time and time again. So this actually applied to subrogation rights uh, in two different cases uh, before the appellate division. Now they're unpublished decisions uh, in 2014 and 2016 respect respectively. Uh, so they don't have any sort of precedential value, but they are instructive. Uh, so Brake versus Martin actually had uh, property damage due to flooding and mold. Uh, the property carrier paid uh, for uh, recovery to the insured. Um, the insured actually then goes and brings an action. Uh, well, first, the property insurer brings an action against the contractor saying, well, this flooding wouldn't have happened had you done this correctly. So they filed their subrogated action. Later on, uh, the insured files against the contractors as well, um, but this time under a personal injury claim. Now, in this case, uh, the, the appellate division actually said uh, the personal injury claim could survive because there was no indication uh, that the insured had a fair and reasonable opportunity to join their claims in the prior suit. Um, but conversely, uh, Franklin Mutual Insurance Company versus Castle Restoration, this one got rather complicated. Um, we had, uh, again, it, it was involving property and construction, a uh, new condominium building. Um, the tenant filed suit against um, the contractors. Meanwhile, uh, the property insurer did not pay out on the claim. Uh, and so the tenant also sued in Passaic County this time uh, for payment of benefits under the insurance policy for the property. And uh, the insurer did not become obligated to pay anything until that Passaic County action was decided against them. But meanwhile, there was the insured's action pending against the contractors in Hudson County. So the insured then tried to, or I'm sorry, the carrier then tried to subrogate against the contractors to get the recovery on what they became obligated to pay pursuant to the judgment against them in the Passaic County action. And that claim, that subrogation action was actually barred. Uh, and the court even enumerates a number of different things that the carrier could have done differently to get it right. Uh, they could have uh, joined in the suit against the contractors because of the potential for a subrogation interest. They could have filed a motion to consolidate the actions and then bifurcate the trial, uh, asking for the issue of coverage to be resolved first. Uh, they could have intervened in the case. They could have filed their own suit in Passaic County against the contractors. They could have filed their own suit in Hudson County against the contractors. There was a number of different things the carrier could have done correctly, but they didn't do any of them. And so even though they didn't become obligated to pay until after that Passaic County case happened, it was held against them thanks to the entire controversy doctrine. So <clears throat> recently we have a decision from uh, July 21st, 2020, New Jersey Supreme Court case, <clears throat> Bank Lumi USA versus Kloss. So this is interesting. We now hold that the entire controversy doctrine likewise does not bar a party who files a successful motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim from later asserting claims that arise from the same transactional facts. So say you file a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim, 
but you also might have a counterclaim or a cross claim based on the same thing and you prevail on your motion to dismiss. Well, what this decision is saying is that you prevailed on your motion to dismiss, that's not gonna be held against you. You can still bring your counterclaim. It's not necessarily gonna bar it under the entire controversy doctrine. So it's an interesting little twist added just recently in July. So now we will get to the question and answer portion. Let me get my webinar open. And I do not see any questions. All right, well, thank you very much for uh, joining us for the September 2020 Major Mondays webinar. Uh, and as always, we hope to see you next month.